Peruvian energy. What up? What up? What up? Welcome to what? Losing our minds. <laughs> you sound like you're crying. I, I think I might be. I Sometimes might. It's hard. I might. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Uh, how are you, Chelsea? I'm I'm good. I think I'm in a similar space of like somebody says something funny and I start laughing. <laughs> just burst into tears. Yeah, I start laughing and it kind of turns into that kid that's like saying they're cool to get on the school bus and then they just start like sobbing on the news. Yes, that is exactly <laughs> how I feel. Uh, just really kind of also been like quite steadily just a little bit hungover. Yeah all the time that's fun <laughs> so my tummy is like hates me right now it's just a little ball of like hangover anxious weight that's just oh like, good mm. well oh, hey i did get this sticker from glossier uh, i never know. know if it's glossier oh it just says glossier uh, oh, right. <laughs> but when you hold it up backwards it does look like a little penis it looks yeah like a penis with like elephant syndrome. It looks like a penis that has like a couple extra nubs, but like, don't pretend like that wouldn't feel good. Don't hate. <laughs> don't judge. Don't judge the nubs. Uh, we don't have any friends with us today. <laughs> some, we don't have any friends anymore. Some might say we don't have any friends. It, we uh, we decided that this week, for, through nothing like a scheduling errors or anything like that, we just decided that we were going to do Just Ask Girls. Oh, just as girls. I don't know. I I've honestly been wanting to like try out this um this format. I think it could mm-hmm. be fun. Obviously, I have like big love in my heart, like nothing but love, like big love in my heart <laughs> for having a guest. But sometimes yeah. it's like I just want. Oh, you know, I love guest. Yeah, you know, every I love time. Guests. Every time guest is on, I love guest. Yeah, I'm like God. Guest, <laughs> be on this show more often, but. <laughs> Sometimes it's fun just to scream at my friend Ellie, especially when we're both in a similar uh, mental space. I don't, right. I don't think anybody wants to be in this Zoom room with us right now. I, it would be irresponsible of us to add someone in to this. <laughs> someone into mood. that mix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I would be, I would be well, like terrified of frightening them. And this way, Aww. I know that there's nothing I can say that will scare you. <laughs> That's so true. That's beautiful. I would wear that t-shirt. <laughs> There's nothing, there's nothing, nothing you, can, you say. can say. Nothing you can say that scares me. Oh, it's gorgeous. I'm really excited actually, because it gave me an opportunity to um, go a bit long form with my topic. I'm excited as well. I'm, I gotta tell you. Digging deep, if you will. I'm fucking jazzed about my topic. Okay. Yeah, I said it and I know it was a lot for you, but there's nothing that I could say that would scare you. Okay. That's true. So- <laughs> But to- I'm fucking jazzed. <laughs> fucking jazzed. Well, it has everything that I look for in a good what topic, which is that like it's topical. It's like mm. on the news. But mm. then when you dig in, it like tells me it gets me to learn something about something I've always wanted to dig into. And now I know, bro, you know that made me learn. <laughs> that made me learn. And now I know so much more about this interesting topic that I've heard about so many times and never like studied. And now I know a lot, and I hate it. Mm. It's bad. <laughs> I, my story is fucking buck wild it goes all over the place there are characters that, that i get introduced and then they come on back in some Shyamalan twist i'm so excited we do you. love that i love our mine because it is about in at its heart us uk relations some <gasps> might call it the specialist relationship oh the most special relationship the most of that pond special relationship we just look at each other on each side of the pond and we cry yeah Ugh. oh but also i have a us uk not really us just uk themed okay. fact bang 
Uh, yeah. So I guess I was trying to think of like there's a really good like British term for a fact bank, kind of like a uh, million pounds, although. Ooh, but it's just I like, like that. Just like a this the real deal, in it? Like <laughs> it's a it's a you what, mate? You know what, mate? <laughs> you what, mate? <laughs> Whatever you yes. want, I mean, you what, mate? For you, please. You like okay, speak sprecken my lingo. Uh, so it's based on your favorite West End musical, Six, the story of the <laughs> six. Oh <laughs> my god! I know how much you love that musical and all the songs that are in it, and the fact that it I- is. It is, and I cannot stress this enough. Shit. <laughs> oh, it is so shit. I don't understand why everyone fucking loves it so much. Well, because I told you, or I, I guess you saw. I don't think you interacted with these these texts, but like in our kind of quarantine group chat, I texted that I was like into slime tutorials, and then I waited three days for anyone to respond to that bait, and no one did. And then I was like, slime <laughs> tutorials is the secret code on YouTube for like Broadway. Uh, bootlegs like you can find a bootleg of like any broadway show if you write like the general theme and then so you wouldn't write like high school slime tutorial and it'll bring up heathers or you bring up like legal slime tutorial oh. and it bring up legally blonde or my favorite one slime That's tutorial hilarious. with bugs and it brings up beetlejuice so, i love that everyone like with quarantine everyone like quarantine mind just read that and went yeah okay fine yeah nobody nobody said anything <laughs> i was like guys guess what i'm really into slime tutorials wait for it and then just like silence for like two days I was like, wow get that slime girl so i found a six slime tutorial and i was like oh right. i want to see this i want to see how this is staged it's not staged it is just <laughs> like six women on stage with like no like set design or like it's like it's a I knew it was a sung through but it's like there is no story it's a it's review style so it's just like the songs I'm mad (laughs) it's bad I'm angry they don't even give you something impressive to look at and be like well that is shit but like well done yeah well no they don't but let's keep going so Anne of Cleves right that is Henry VIII's fourth wife and the story has always gone yeah the story has always gone that he like you know knew she had a lot of money he asked for her to come over and be his queen and then when she got there he thought she was so ugly that he like got rid of her that's like always been the tale right right yeah but i was really suspicious of that because history loves to like put down women you know like what i know (laughs) no (laughs) that doesn't sound right right so it turns out here's what's up uh i found this portrait of anne of cleves and there was a bunch of writing with it and they were saying she a grotta or not she was fine but so supposedly her portrait that was painted that henry the eighth saw when he decided to marry her was painted by one of the most respected like portrait artists of that time and it's very uh-huh. very unlikely that she did not look significant that she looked significantly different from that portrait it doesn't really make any sense in the context of the rest of this guy's art but here right. is something that does make sense. So here's some things that we know about Henry VIII and that we know about Anne of Cleves that we might be able to like put together. Great guy. Yeah, great, great guy. guy. Real salt <laughs> of the earth. So <laughs> real nice dude. So Henry VIII, you know, from a young age was like the sort of strapping like soldier, hunter, gamesman, right? Who's a real jock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of his favorite things to do, and this is well documented, is that he would go around to like countryside taverns and like, you know, basically like kind of benefit from the fact that the internet didn't exist and nobody knew what he looked like. And he'd go and like, (laughs) 
he'd go and like be like rowdy. He'd like get rowdy <laughs> with like the regular people. And he liked cool. to go kiss women. And I'm sure he probably did more than that, but that's what's been written down is that he would go kiss. I like to kiss women. <laughs> I want to kiss a girl. I'm Henry VIII and I'm going to go kiss women. So he started <laughs> doing that like around like 16 or 17 and he always did it. It was like his favorite Later. pastime, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's also known that Anne of Cleves traveled, you know, from Germany, Austria, up through France and then into like Southern England and then on her way to court. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's known that Henry VIII decided that that would be fun to go maybe like see a, a catch a glimpse of his betrothed before she got there. So some historians think that what really happened was that he disguised himself went and met up with her and tried to give her a kiss and she being like a royal in her own right and known for being kind of outspoken uh basically like slapped him in the face and was like you're disgusting get away from me and it sort of forced oh. him to acknowledge the fact that he was no longer like a 17 year old jock but was like a 55 year old morbidly obese like monster <laughs> and like, just the broadest fucking beast you'd ever see <laughs> about portraits of henry the eighth is that he is like an actual square like, yeah he's drawn like mr incredible like, <laughs> it's so bizarre even though they had to use a crane lift him on his horse like that poor horse so, um <laughs> so anyway so it they think that maybe he was so humiliated by the fact that her true kind of honest reaction to him that he thought was gonna be this cute fun like rakish thing was it was actually ew, ew oh my god get away from me that he was like, he was like actually you're ugly actually you're ugly <laughs> you have to leave oh my gosh that's amazing it's like the people that get uh turned down on uh tinder and stuff and are like actually i didn't even want like, you go fuck yourself how extra of him what a drama fucking queen i know just big, so big good. square of a man. That, that is a great you want, mate. I loved it. I'm so glad. Let us segue into our mini game. I love it. Um, my topic for this week is called From Peter to Paul. <gasps> okay, is it about apostles? No. Is it about- That would be bold, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, is it about uh, folk music? I'm going to describe exactly why the re resurrection of Jesus is real, <laughs> and I'm going to do it on our podcast. I mean, it would be a bold move. <laughs> it would. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not about the apostles. Or folk music? No. Explain. Isn't there like a Peter, Paul, and Mary or something like that? Like a folk Sounds trio? right. <laughs> I swear that's like, a thing. I'm picturing their album and she's in between them like holding a ukulele softly and they're both like they look kind of like they might be related and or fucking. Peter, Paul and Mary was an American folk group formed in New York City in 1961. So yes. <laughs> and yeah, actually it does look very similar to what you're describing. <laughs> yes. I think you just felt it. But I'm I'm From guessing since we had to go on that journey, that means it's not about the folk trio, Peter, Paul and Mary. No, it's not the aforementioned Shyamalan twist. <laughs> oh, that would be so good, though. Can you imagine? Um, God, from Peter to Paul. I'm actually very proud of this title. Let me just tell you. Okay, that does that <laughs> narrows it down. <laughs> You're gonna love it. <laughs> You're gonna love it. All become clear. Okay, I'm so excited for this to become clear. Well, I've given you a lot of hints already about mine because there's like some US UK mm -hmm. relations. There's a topical element to it. 
It's something mm-hmm. that's like okay. earn the news. And you know I love to be current <laughs> and you know I love to be topical. She's so current, guys. She's so current. Just like me, current. <laughs> Never heard of it. Because I'm already in it. Because I couldn't have heard I'm of it. In it. Yeah. I can't see from outside of it. Yeah. Because I am in it. Because I'm like so fucking current. So I think um, about it. But I will title this one. I guess I, cause see, I was going to call it like the most specialist relationship, but I already kind of dropped the ball on that one. So maybe like, there are no antibodies for this one. <laughs> but you have to have that. Ha ha. Okay. <laughs> there are no antibodies for this one. Ha ha. Um, I mean, I'm feeling if it's UK, USA related antibodies, medical, gotta be that, that virus sneaking up on us. No. I'm actually very glad. Okay, good. Um, oh yeah, I'm just like working really hard to turn this into like Chelsea makes you talk about coronavirus hour. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> no, I think we all have quite enough of it. Yeah, um, not related, but medical, surely. No. Uh, so what do the antibodies mean? Uh, a trick? <laughs> it is. It's Chelsea's trick. Chelsea's little trick. It's time for uh, Chelsea's trick. I was going to say, because I was like, is it about how the rules don't apply to ministers? Wah! Topical, got him. Dominic, asshole. Um, the laws don't apply to ministers? Yeah, didn't you hear about the uh, Boris's like right-hand bloke decided that while he told the whole country to lock down, he didn't himself and like just went out around and drove his family around while he had COVID symptoms? Well, that fucking sucks. And it's yeah, not I- about that, but you are actually, I think, closer than you realize. What? It feels like so it's like a political scandal. There are political scandals involved. Mm. Maybe we do need guests here to kind of temper. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need another guesser. Guest. We just need just somebody to be like regular. Like even. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I think I, t- I told you over text, but I didn't tell our beautiful listeners who are listening uh, that like my mom texted me and was like hey i love the podcast and then she's like and i'm not biased so anybody who's hearing this who thinks that maybe my mom might be biased in terms of thinking (laughs) that our podcast is good she actually went and already said that she was she already went and said that she wasn't biased and that she thought it was really funny uh but she did she kept being like yeah i liked that episode with connor because he was such a straight man and then she was like yeah and that other episode was that one girl was really good who talked about the dinosaurs and she was like just kind of like a straight man for you guys and i'm like are you saying that we're like (laughs) insane it was just too weird (laughs) yeah we're too weird that we need a normal like in the podcast like yeah you need someone who's like you know kind of like rooted in reality just a really Hand, like a firm handle on uh, themselves and how to speak to other people. Yeah, that's cute. <laughs> that's fun. Um, I'm trying to find it because you reminded me. I'm actually going to like plop it into the intro. But I sent a fun thing out on our Twitter asking to um, define our podcast in five words. And I'm going to read out some of the, uh, some of what people say. Oh my God. I tweeted a lot. So it's hard to find. Hang on. Oh, that's fun. Know. It's a good problem to have. Okay, describe what in five words or less. And I said, we'll shout out our favorites in an upcoming episode. And this is now. Um, at secondhand, CK says, seriously freaking awesome and informative. Becky Luna, mm, just the most beautiful woman. Not what biased. Will blow your mind? Not biased. <laughs> <laughs> no such thing. What will blow your mind? Uh, Cameron Kemp said, I, I like this one. Consider this obscure, insane fact. Uh... 
fun facts and wild laughs, a whale of a time, just some really cute responses. So thank you guys. And you should follow us on Twitter because I'm going to be doing more fun little shout outs and stuff like that soon. That is uh, fun. I like those a lot. So cute. It is nice to be validated. It is, it is a nice feeling. <laughs> Chelsea, I'm totally, I'm, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, don't know, know either. Shall we crack, <laughs> shall we crack on? Which let's I think, crack a cold one. Let's crack a cold one. But did I use crack on crack? Is that, no, is that laughing? No. Crack on is either like, no, I think it is just like, let's, let's, let's go. Let's go. Let's crack right. on. Let's crack on. Let's crack on. Who wants to do, who, who out of us two? <laughs> would like to start do you want to start or should i take it uh you can go ahead and take it away miss main okay peter to paul it might be better described as the peter to paul scheme but it was charles ponzi who (gasps) in boston in 1920 earned permanent naming rights to the scheme by dumbfounding authorities like no other i'm going to be talking about the ponzi scheme and why it's called the pon like why it's called a ponzi scheme okay who this man is i am so excited because i have to admit that i just always naturally assumed that uh that had gotten named by somebody in the 80s it just had 80s energy i was imagining it does doesn't it imagine like gordon gecko he's like i'm doing a pansy scheme like i'm assuming that's what that <laughs> movie's about i've never seen pansy it. this is my pansy <laughs> no, 19, scheme we're talking 1920 uh! so- in 1920, Charles Ponzi accumulated nearly $7 million, which is more than $90 million in today's dollars. That's too many millions. Uh, it's too many millions. It really didn't end well for him. This story is butt wild. Strap yourselves in. I do love a butt wild story. I said butt wild. I know, but it really sounded like butt wild and I'm trying to get it going. Okay. <laughs> it is totally butt wild. <laughs> So, Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tabaldo Ponzi. Yeah, you, yikes. You made half of those up. I, I mean, I think he did. <laughs> he was, uh, was born on the 3rd of March in 1882 in Lugo, Italy. His father was a postal worker, and that's going to come back around, folks. I'm going to ask you to put some things in your pockets during this uh, topic, this story. And one of them is that his father was a postal worker. <clears throat> So his father was a postal worker. He died when uh, Carlo was 10. And just kind of how the society worked at the time, it meant that even though he was a child, the responsibility to earn money fell on him. Carlo vowed to sail to America, the land of freedom and opportunity, the American dream, and become rich as fuck, yeah. is what he wanted to do. Uh, as everyone did back, uh, back when they actually liked people coming in. So, Well, I've always heard that the way it works in America, I'm sure you've heard similarly... Mm-hmm. I've always heard that the way that it works in America is you uh, get to America either by birth or yep. by earth, and then and then you have money, and then everything works out for you. Yeah, and then you're rich. So you just you yeah. you get here and you and then you have and money. money, and then you money, <laughs> and then you money. So right, and then and then we've discussed it, but it we've discussed it, but it turns out the American dream was kind of horseshit. <laughs> No, you, and then you get money. I know. Who knew though, <laughs> right? So 
He, uh, Ponzi picked up odd jobs. He was a grocery clerk, a factory hand, dishwasher, waiter, and painter. He did repair work, folded laundry, anything that he could literally just stay afloat and feed himself. Um, and he decided to adopt a variety of surnames other than his own, which, you know, any just law-abiding normal person does, including Bianchi, Ponzi with an S, Ponzi with a C, and just Ponce, which is my favorite. Oh, I think you should have gone with Ponce. Can you imagine how Charles different Ponce. the world would be if it was a Ponce scheme? A Ponce scheme? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love it. Uh, and he found a job in Montreal in July 1907. This is fucking wild. So... The, this guy, Louis Zarossi, hired him as a bank clerk after like a shoot, like a, I think their interview was like five minutes, if that. Um, he fit right in there. <laughs> so Banco Zarossi catered to the Italian immigrant community and paid 6% interest to all the depositors, which was at the time like three times the rate of other banks. But <laughs> the way that he did that, the Zarossi guy, uh-huh. so loads, loads of the customers were immigrants who gave him money to wire home to family in Italy. And he knew that wire transfers, especially back then, took ages. So Zorossi just stole it and used that money to pay his depositors their promised 6%. This was just the baby of what was to come. <laughs> that was great. Um, but Zorossi, so steals money from like hardworking Italian Americans trying to support their families back in Italy. And then he just fills a suitcase with cash and flees to Mexico. <laughs> Tired of earning money in the conventional manner. Aren't we all, Charlie, for goodness sake? Uh, Ponzi one day enters the office of this Canadian warehousing company, which was a customer of the bank he used to work for. And all the staff knew him and trusted him. And they talked for a while about what the crazy stuff that happened at the bank. Can you believe he just runs away to Mexico? And then while no one was looking, he took a check from their company checkbook and wrote it out to himself for $423.58 and then carefully folded the, uh, forged the signature. Okay. And then he decided, like, that was fun. I'm going to go on a little shopping spree. But uh, that was cut short because signatures used to be much more than actual, like, you know, they're just security theater now. Like, there's no one actually sitting down in a bank being like, that's not Chelsea's signature. Call the police. That's true. Um, they called the police who had no trouble finding Ponzi and arrested him. He he pretended to be mental by chewing a towel to bits and trying to jump out of a window. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, he was sentenced to three year term to a three year term at the St. Vincent de Paul Penitentiary. Um, and that was his jailer settled in the name of Charles Ponzi with an S. Put that in your ah. pocket. That's coming back around. <laughs> Ponzi. Ponzi. Charles Ponzi. He shared a cell with an especially nasty convict named Louis Casulo. Ponzi would later describe him as one of those prowling, petty, sneaky thieves whose counterparts in the animal kingdom are the hyenas and the jackals. Ponzi was a good little boy and he got out of jail uh, after 20 months for good behavior and was just like, see ya, you crazy bitch. His (laughs) his, uh, cellmate. The next time he popped up in my research was in May 1919, where authorities served Ponzi a warrant for stealing 5,387 pounds of cheese. But look, bitches be hungry. Bitches need that cheeses. Uh, but they misspelled his name on the document. And so he let that led to a dismissal of charges, which is great because <gasps> he has like eight names. So that is. Charles Pauzi was, uh, was the guy that was supposed to be arrested. And he's like, that's not me. And they're like, <laughs> by George, it isn't. See you later. <laughs> well, God damn it. <laughs> but this is where the Ponzi scheme begins. 
So, not long after the demand of this trader's guide, in August 1919, Ponzi received a letter from a merchant in Spain asking about it. And with that letter, it was an official-looking square of paper, and it was an international reply coupon, or IRC. Um, these were created in 1906 by a multinational body of postal services to simplify international mail. So you could buy an IRC at a local post office, enclose it in a letter to be sent to one of the like, participating countries of this this service. Okay. And the recipient could redeem it for whatever local postage stamp on their end um, required to send it back. So it was kind of like a just a union between a bunch of countries of like trying to simplify how people can send letters. Known today as arbitrage, the strategy Charles Ponzi devised was actually pretty sound. So for example, one US dollar could buy 20 IRCs in Boston or more than 60 in Rome. So Ponzi could have someone buy IRCs in Italy for roughly 1.5 cents each, send them back to America where he could sell them for 5 cents each, earning a profit of 233%, which is massive. Yeah. So he decided to offer investors a 50% return in 45 days or 100% in 90, and then he could keep the rest for himself, which was essentially legal. Um, yeah. But, but in practice, completely absurd because like, beyond the problem of how to compete with the US Postal Service for selling stamps, there just weren't actually enough IRCs in existence to make any significant profit through arbitrage. And he discovered this pretty quickly. So at the end of February 1920, Ponzi owed 2,655 to investors, their initial capital plus a bunch of interest. And he had no profits to pay them. So he took a lesson from Zorossi, the uh... bank manager in Montreal, and paid the investors with new investors' money, Peter to Paul. Uh... Oh, <laughs> steal from Peter and... to give to Paul? Yep. Fuck. Mm-hmm. This okay, is like old-timey is... Wolf of Wall Street. Exactly. <laughs> this is one of my favorite bits. He Then he just kind of straight up makes up a guy. He claimed that he had an associate named Lanello uh, Sarti. Lanello Sarti, who had gone to Italy and returned with loads of coupons. All the coupons. There were so many coupons and no one needs to worry. He has a tremendous amount of coupons. Yeah, they're the best but coupons. They're the best coupons. They're, they're so many of them just drowning in coupons. Um, but no one, he just didn't exist. This person just was not real. Oh, and I'm assuming their coupons, but their coupons were real though, right? The, like they're, no, he, he didn't. <laughs> I know I'm fucking with you. Oh, right. <laughs> he didn't have any. No, but like um, they were there though. Like they were worth money. Right. And but you know what, you know what's so weird is that the investors really didn't care as long as they were getting paid. Isn't that strange? That is strange. That is different from now. That is so different from now. How things have changed, you know? Uh, um, Real quick, go on. as a yeah. just like a, a quick pause uh, table talk, I want you to know, so I'm like sitting in the den because I'm recording and uh, Connor just came in, didn't say anything to me and like opened the window and then left. And so I texted him while you were talking and I was like, why? And then he wrote back, so you can look for my pants because he thinks he's going to get pants today. And apparently now it's my job while I'm recording this to watch and see if his <laughs> pants come. Uh, <laughs> I'm leaving that in <laughs> so that's fun the stamp thing was a total hit Bostonians literally lined up at the door of his office to entrust their money with him it was called Ponzi's Securities Exchange Company and in February 1920 they took in $5,920 which is 67000 in our money now and in March, they took in $25,000, which is $320,000. Holy in guacamole. Money 
that this thing is taking the F off. Yeah. Who pops back? Who circles back in? Who can you pull out of your pocket? Lou Casolo, his terrifying cellmate from Montreal, tracked Ponzi oh, down. Yes. After learning of his success, knowing that Ponzi would give him a job to keep his mouth shut. About having been in prison. <laughs> About having been in prison. Ooh. And like, I would love to be a fly, a historic fly on the wall in that meeting of like, oh, hey, Ponzi, it's me, Casolo. And I'm gonna bet that you don't want any of these people out here knowing that you were in jail with me. So, and the story Ponzi, told. Yeah, so Ponzi gave him a job. And Kaslu freely stole from him whenever he felt like. <laughs> <laughs> that is fun. And he was like, oh, for fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> but he like, couldn't get rid of this dude because then he was going to tell, tell a secret. Aww. One day, the Boston police sent two detectives to check in on the business. Seemed a little, maybe that something a little fishy was going on. No, you think? <laughs> that discussion actually ended with the police investing in the scheme. <laughs> was clearly he was a freaking smooth talker yeah like um, plus two charisma right absolutely uh five yeah he, he, he seems to be rolling nat 20s all over the fucking board <laughs> five police officers uh, five police inspectors and a lieutenant would eventually put their money into ponzi securities exchange company as would hundreds of street cops several in mm. fact became agents for him earning 10 percent commission and giving his operation this legitimately that no like legitimacy that no money could buy <sighs> By the spring of 1920, Ponzi was taking in 30 grand every week. In May alone, uh, he got $440,000. And in June, $2.5 million, which is equivalent to $32 million today. That's nuts. So things are going pretty good, right? Man's making m- m- millions of dollars. And this is when it all started going a bit wrong for Ponzi. What a shame. Oh, shocking. In July, U.S. postal authorities issued a formal ban against anyone redeeming more than 50 cents worth of ISCs at one time. Ooh. Made it all but impossible for anyone to turn a large-scale profit by trading in them. But it was kind of moot because by mid-July, Ponzi was taking in $1 million a week. 30, he made $13 million a, in today's money in a week. Oh, my God. Uh, he delivered on his promise of exorbitant returns by stealing from Peter to pay Paul. And to them, they, and obviously they didn't know that, but that was all that matters was that they got their returns. So, you know, who cares? So the Boston Post put the story on the front page of its Sunday, July 4th edition. And two people took particular interest. The publisher of the Boston Post, Robert Grosier, and the state banking commissioner, Joseph Allen. Allen was like, mm, that doesn't seem right that's fishy and so he went to talk to the attorney general who told him to drop like to back off and drop it and that there was nothing going on everything's fine yeah it's actually chill it's <laughs> totally chill it's actually totally chill <laughs> um ponzi then bought the bank basically he bought so many shares in the bank that he was in charge of it okay uh-huh that sounds he fair. Effect- yeah he effectively controlled the hanover trust bank and that put him back on this bank commissioner's radar who's like, no, I'm really thinking that this bloke's not so great. I and he was like, feeling like, you know, maybe. Right. <laughs> and so I'm going to disregard what the journey, the general attorney said. Um, and I'm going to send two assistant attorneys to, uh, for a meeting with Ponzi at the Boston state house. So he goes, Ponzi goes, his pitch all polished to perfection, handling every single question with a plum. 
He said later, I was almost ashamed to match wits with them. It was like stealing candy from a baby. <laughs> so, cool. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a real piece of work. Yeah. Um, but the officials were like, yeah, I mean, this sounds great. It all sounds good to me. Selling the stamps, giving the people the money. It's just going well. And everyone else is jealous of you, but I get it. I get it. So he hires William McMasters, a publicist with an exceptionally bright future who'd earned his reputation helping numerous public officials to get elected, uh, including political luminaries like John F. Honeyfitz Fitzgerald, who was the grandfather of uh, John F. Kennedy. Oh, nice. Yeah, so he's got to get into work of like, okay, publicist, got it, let's go. <laughs> this will be, um, be quick. This this will be great. Mid-July, the Boston Post ran a back-to-back feature stories on Ponzi and his operation. They were generally pretty upbeat and positive because Robert Grosier, the guy who is the publisher, didn't want to br- like didn't want to print anything that would bring a lawsuit on him mm-hmm. and put the family newspaper at risk. On the 26th of July, the Post reported the more ominous news that respected financial authority, this guy Barron, found the plan totally implausible. He saw through it immediately. He was like, no, 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 no. That's so stupid. <laughs> but all that happened as a result of that was that investors, people with loads of money, learned how much money other people were making through this thing. And so just more people invested. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah, Ponzi took 6.5 million from 200,000 investors. No, sorry, 20,000 investors that month. And one day it reported that the New York Postmaster had said there's not enough international reply coupons in the whole world to account for Ponzi's fortune. (laughs) And then they published another more detailed analysis by that guy, Barron, who was basically like, why would Ponzi put his own money into investments earning single digit returns if he could realize 100% returns in 90 days? It didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but still, all of the investors were like, we don't care because we're making money. Leave us alone. This is our thing. Yeah. Um, like, I hear what you're saying, but like, I put my hand out and Ponzi puts money in it. So. Right. He gives me 100% of my investment back in three months. So. I do yeah, want I'm, that. I'm fine. Ponzi sues this guy, Baron for $5 million and threatens the paper saying he would own their presses if they weren't careful. Oh, Ooh. great. Right. <laughs> Step up, McMasters. He started to note inconsistencies as his boss moves from one meeting to, him, to another um, and started to get a bit suspicious. So he used the next several days to take a closer look at the operation and it took him no time at all to find out that it was a massive fraud. <laughs> um, <laughs> off, of it, off of it being a massive fraud. Yeah. <laughs> um, and knowing his, own, his whole career was at risk as a result of being attached to it he goes straight to robert grosier from the boston post with his discovery offering to write a full expose but grosier was like nah dude i cannot afford those legal fees so mcmasters goes to the district attorney and gets a guarantee that the post would be immune from lawsuits in case the story turned out to be untrue but that was enough for grosier who learned of the promise and allowed mcmasters to publish an astonishing expose declares Ponzi is now hopelessly insolvent. And the story, you know, completely blew this whole thing open, described in detail everything McMasters had found. Um, Ponzi was like, nah, because he doesn't even have the book. So like, how would you like even see that? Yeah, he's just like making it up. A Boston Post reporter received a very interesting tip that a Charles Ponzi with an S, pick it it out of your pocket, was rumored to have spent time in jail in Montreal for forging chips. (gasps) Dum, dum, dum! It finally comes out. It comes rushing back. At one in the morning, 
On the 11th of August, 1920, a Post reporter confronted Ponzi at his home in Lexington about the article being prepared for that day's edition. Hearing the claim, Ponzi denied being Ponzi, with an S, <laughs> and told them not to run the story, else you're going to get the presses ripped out of your building. Uh, uh, but they did it anyway. And this is the most buck fucking wild headline I have ever read. Like, I I don't know when they decided that headlines should probably be like, I don't know, catchy and like clever. This is the headline. Montreal police, jail warden and others declare that Charles Ponzi of Boston and Charles Ponzi of Montreal, who were sentenced to two and a half years in jail for forgery in Italian bank, are one and the same men. <laughs> I do miss when they were just like, yeah, just like a run on sentence. <laughs> Like, yeah. if you read one thing today, just let it be this one, like, nightmare <laughs> sentence squished together. It's just that. And then after being like, no, oh, that wasn't me, Ponzi then was like, well, yeah, that was me, but I hadn't done it. I was innocent. Uh, it was actually the guy, Louis Zarossi, who owned that bank that did it. Not not me. Not little Ponzi. <laughs> uh, no, not, not little Ponce. <laughs> not, not Mr. Ponce. Um, never. This is great. The story was so far-fetched that even his own lawyer standing at his side resigned on the spot. <laughs> okay, he was yeah. like, uh, you know what? Fuck this. <laughs> yeah, that definitely, this solidifies, I would definitely watch this, like, Netflix prestige drama. <laughs> like, um, story. I mean, it only, like, we're wrapping it up, but it only gets wilder. There's no way. Right. So... Ponzi's liabilities came to $7 million, the audit found. Uh, and he turned himself into authorities immediately. <sighs> he was placed under arrest on charges of using the US mail to commit fraud. And this is where we can bring back the fact that his father, who passed away, was a postal worker. Mm-hmm. So dark, just a dark little part of the tale there. Um, in public statements, he continued to portray himself as just doing the work of the people, man. I was just trying to help the little guys. Yeah, duh. Right. Um, but he admit that he did lie about relying on the postal coupon scheme, uh, a postal coupon scheme, but only to keep Wall Street bankers from discovering his true operation, being a vigilante freedom fighter. <gasps> right, for the for the little men. Yeah. And they were like, like a Robin Hood. Like, Most people got nothing more than a costly lesson in naivete. Uh, he was sentenced to five years in prison. That's it. That's it? That's it. Uh, that's uh, sadly not that different than today. Right. He was sentenced to five years, but only served one for good behavior. Um, upon his release in 1925, he got, like, the, the state took another run, state prosecutors, and got him back in prison for, like, seven years or something. But while on bail awaiting his return to jail, he went to Florida and started a brand new investment scheme in real estate, offering investors 200% return in 60 days. Uh, but Florida officials quickly shut it down and arrested him, and he went to prison again. <laughs> he tried to write an autobiography, but no one really cared. He moved to Brazil to take a job for the Italian state airline, but that fizzled out. And then he spent the rest of his life teaching English in Rio de Janeiro, where he, after like a very steep decline in his health, died in 1949 with $75 to his name. What a journey. And that is why we have the term Ponzi scheme. That makes sense. Which is, in the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, a form of fraud in which belief in success of a non-existent enterprise is fostered by the payment of quick returns to the first investors from money invested by later investors. Yikes. Yeah. Here to pay Paul. Uh, (laughs) Gosh. Um, What a, like, what a cad. (laughs) 
Oh score my me. gosh, baby. Score me. Um, score me. Oh, I'll score you. Eleanor, as always, yeah. just comprehensive as fuck. I mean, like that's- It was meaty. It was- Thank you for hanging in. It was meaty. It was girthy. It was not unlike my glossier sticker. <laughs> <laughs> Full of unexpected bumps in the road. <laughs> Veiny as all get out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, no, I'm definitely, I'm going to give you, I'm going to start you with a solid 11 for, uh, prep for strong prep. And you know what, in in this age of everything being virtual, you could have cheated. I wouldn't know if it wasn't in your little notebook, but (laughs) you did a great job. And I think, I think it should be rewarded. Um, thanks very much. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, uh, another two points for allowing me a segue to talk about TikToks because you know, that's important to me. Um, but I am going to take away two points for fraud and that is yeah. on you. <laughs> well, the whole subject, like both <laughs> micro and macro. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say that my topic is also topical because, uh, Western life is kind of a scam. Yeah. Cause we'd be scamming. So we'd be scamming because like of this whole, like having to have a job thing to pay for stuff is like, shitty I I mean it's not my topic this time this week but I will say someday I would love to have like an in-depth discussion maybe we could do like a live stream or something with some like listeners which is like how old were you when you realized that like you know quotation marks the economy is a scam where it's like (laughs) you grow up and then you start to hear about scams where they're like oh you can't take that person's money because that's a scam or like for example you can't take money from some people and then give it to other people if you don't have enough money to pay everybody back because that's a scam and then you get a a little bit older and then they're like this is how banks work and these are how stocks work and you're like well wait a minute and they're like no it's not a scam when we do it (laughs) It's not a scam if you're wearing a suit. Yeah. Okay? And if you're not open at any other time than when the people are at work, which I just will never understand. <laughs> oh, oh, now Ellie's really getting into it. I don't understand that. Yeah, it's really. Oh, <laughs> oh man. All right. Are you ready for my topic? I am. Well, I'm actually going to crack a bit. You're going to crack a claw? Yeah. I might claw it. Yeah. break. Oh, no. You're out of claw. No. Uh, Con- worse. Connor's pants got delayed till tomorrow. No! And we're back. <laughs> Hello. Okay. All right. I got I'm my so claw. Ready. I've got my my sources queued up. I'm so excited. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've been wanting mm-hmm. to talk about mm-hmm. this. Meaty. Delicious. It's, Let's do it's it. pretty meaty. I don't know if it's going to be the same length, which like I'm a little, I'm a little size insecure, uh, but <laughs> It is really interesting, but the first thing that we need to talk about when we talk about this topic, Ellie, is I need to know if you're up to date on this current story that's going on with Ansicoulis and Harry Dunn. No. Okay. So what had happened was in August in near Crowton in Northamptonshire in the UK, yeah, uh, there was a 19-year-old British man named Harry Dunn, and he was mm-hmm. riding his motorbike what you guys call them um yes. he was riding his motorbike and he was struck by a car going the wrong way down the road uh you don't want to be doing that no and he died very sad uh the woman that hit him is named Ansa Coolis, and she is an american citizen 
And that is why she claimed to the police when they showed up that she was driving on the wrong side of the road is that she forgot because it's kind of a, it was sort of a, a rural road with like less traffic. Um, and that she just forgot that y'all do it on the other side over there. Uh, okay. Definitely doesn't, no, does not excuse it in any means, but she was very cooperative with the police and she did a breathalyzer and she answered questions. Um, she, you know, appeared completely in her right mind. So the police are thinking, okay, we've got all this information, right? We've got all the evidence. We're talking to the family. The family wants justice, understandably. This was their son and he was really young. Um, and so then they go to get a warrant. They're like, we want this warrant for uh, this American citizen living and working near the RAF station uh, okay. in Crowton for vehicular homicide. And Metro's like, ooh, no. And they're like, what? And they're like, huh? No. No, thank you. No, actually, actually you can't. <laughs> Not only that, oh, but she's gone. She's, uh, she and her husband have moved back to the United States. And they won't be, they won't be coming back. This was like soon after the oh yeah the northamptonshire police are like okay what the fuck and the foreign and commonwealth office informs ah. the police uh this is uh, within so this happened on august 27th on right. september god damn it on september 16th the foreign and commonwealth office mm -hmm. informs the police that she's gone and the police are like they, they look back at their notes and they notice that she mentioned a little buzzword or a little buzz phrase, I guess, called diplomatic immunity when she was talking to the police when this first happened. Oh. Uh, so they had, so they applied for a waiver for this immunity. It was denied, but not explained why it was denied by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. So they said, so like, what the fuck? Like, is she a diplomat? And they're like, no. And they're like, well, is her husband or like immediate family member a diplomat? And they're like, no. And, they're, well, and being a diplomat would just, if you murder someone, it's just like, oh, well. Oh, yeah. We're going to get into this. So that's what diplomatic immunity is, which is bananas on its own. That's crazy. Yeah. Wait. So wait, you didn't know this? No. I didn't know that there's like a level that you could be where you like, you can do crime. Oh, yeah. No. All foreign diplomats enjoy diplomatic immunity in foreign countries from all crimes and this what? is something that i so this is something that i kind of knew about like i had heard this phrase and i think i had seen it as like a b plot in like for example scandal or something where they're like oh we can't get that guy's diplomatic immunity but i didn't realize yes i always assumed it was for like dumb things you just get like a j get out of jail always car yeah so and honestly this this developing story right now this story of ansicoulis and harry dunn uh, has got diplomatic immunity at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, because it's fucked up. Yeah, because people are, <laughs> people, turns out they don't really like it when like somebody kills somebody's kid. So this has been an and, ongoing- and, and nothing comes of and it. And absolutely nothing comes of it. So this has been an ongoing story and we will return to it at the end of this topic. But first Ooh. I want to dig into a little bit about diplomatic immunity because yes, as okay. we just talked about, 
Uh, I'm shook, dude. I'm shook. Yeah, it's fucked. Uh, a lot of people know a lot about this. So let's start with like, what's the history of diplomatic immunity? Where did this come from? And it's one of those things, like so many things in life that starts from actually like a really good place of like people trying to be more civil and empathetic to each other. And it's over time become distorted into something that it was never meant to be. So back mm. in the olden days, and when I say olden days, I'm talking about like ancient Greece, ancient Rome, there was no diplomatic immunity. And people would quite literally kill the messenger. Like one really good example uh, that, I think, <laughs> that I think that everybody remembers, but um, maybe didn't think about it in this context is, okay, you remember in the movie 300? Yes. <laughs> you know, like the iconic scene where he goes, this is Sparta! Sparta! And he like kicks that guy. Kicks him and he falls down the well. Hell yeah. So that's a real event that happened. So what happened was- um, King Leonidas? Yeah, Zeus, because King Leonidas, like this is all like, that was- very, very loosely based on, yes. on true events, historical events. The Thermopylae, right? Yeah, so King Xerxes of Persia sent a diplomatic messenger to Sparta. He's the one in, he's the, one in the movie with the crazy voice. He's that big boy in that movie. <laughs> it's like, oh, big boy. With the beautiful big. makeup. Yeah, very big, very beautiful. So he sent yeah. a diplomatic messenger to Sparta, and he said, give me water and earth, which was an old fashioned term for like saying submission, basically like, I want your, I want your stuff. I have, I have you now, please. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like water and earth. To which King Leonidas <laughs> did not say this is Sparta, but supposedly historically he said, I'm sure you'll find water and earth down there and then threw him into the well, which is like badass, like badass, dude. Kind of, kind of cool. Kind of cool, yeah. but it's also not really that messenger's fault, right? No, not at all. Yeah, no. So that kind of stuff was super common. Uh, in fact, I do remember, in fact, the guy in the movie is like, you can't do that. And he's like, see ya. Yeah, he's like, bye. Um, so, so yeah, so that was, uh, that was the norm, right? It's like, it, that would be really like, honestly, the shittiest job, like the shortest straw to pull <laughs> is to have to go send a message or go try to work with like a foreign nation on your nation's behalf. Because if at any moment something like, you know, somebody got mad or like wires got crossed, you would be the one that would pay the price. Uh, and obviously right. that is not a sustainable model. <laughs> so no. uh, beginning around like the three, 400 AD times, uh, nations start to develop these kind of like ad hoc uh, agreements with each other. Uh, one of the mm -hmm. earliest recorded examples of diplomatic immunity actually came under the Islamic empire with Muhammad, where he said, any envoys that I send should be protected. And in turn, anyone who comes into the Islamic empire representing a nation will have my full protection. Yeah. All of these kind of, you know, patchwork, like ad hoc agreements between these different nations, they finally get ratified in the Vienna convention. This is in like, it's like a TLDR on the Vienna convention. This is when all the governments got together and said, <laughs> this is just sort of like the fundamentally the bare minimum of how we're going to treat each other. Like, right. no matter what, you're not going to like bomb people without giving them notice. And you're not going to like, you know, rape and pillage and you're not going to go do these things. And when somebody comes and says to you, please, Mr. Governor, I would like to start a war. You're not going to kill that guy because it's not his fault. So right. that was the original idea behind diplomatic immunity was protection and mutual respect. What it has become now is still protection and mutual respect, but it also, it does often 
maybe often's not the right word. There have been several, and I mean several instances of people doing really horrific things and suffering absolutely no consequence. Uh, the way it is, the way it's supposed to work is so. Say um, you, Eleanor, say that you are a diplomat living here in the okay. United States, and um, it's a secret. Shh, don't tell. Uh, and you steal my white claws, and I—I oh. I know, and that's a felony in America. And that's a felony. That's a fucking felony. And so, <laughs> technically, uh, you should not be like the the police can't arrest you. They can't do a warrant. They can't search your premises for that white cloth. But what they're supposed to do in a perfect world is that they would go to the UK government. And they would say, hey, we have this evidence that your diplomat, Eleanor Maine, stole our golden child, Chelsea Harfouche's white claw. And the UK would say, have at her. And they would waive your immunity. And then you would suffer the consequences. Because the other idea is that a diplomat, again, this is all like this like pomp and circumstance, like perfect world shit. They're like, well, it's not a problem because diplomats know that they're held to a higher standard and they're meant to represent their country when they're in a foreign land and it's like no oh, people sure. are people like people do people fuck up so right that's like the school prefects are the good ones and they never do bad things yeah exactly let's go back to ansiculus and harry dunn though because this is going on right now and it is as you say but wild so, <laughs> but wild where where are we at with it so here's where well we're not anywhere good eleanor <laughs> okay I'll tell you that so did you hear the hope in my voice? Yeah, I did. And I was just ready just to slam it down. Here's the weirdest fucking, this story just keeps getting weirder and weirder. So no one could get like a clear answer from the British government or the American government as to whether or not they were diplomatics, just that they were offered diplomatic immunity. This is, oh God, this is where things go from bad to worse. So oh, yikes. So back to Harry Dunn, his parents, do not want to take, oh, well, yeah, it's not the way it is, uh, for their answer. Uh, so right. they hire these specialist lawyers. And that is when oh, things yeah. get real hairy. Um, oh, no. I know. Because, as you might know, President of the United States is Donald Trump. And the Prime Minister <sighs> of the UK is Boris Johnson. Two and- horrendous ball bags. <laughs> and they're not doing a great job at this. Uh, so this no. is really, uh, this has escalated. Let me put it that way. This has escalated to a place where some experts are saying that the special relationship has never been in more peril because we now have Ooh. two leaders using this 19-year-old's death as a dick measuring contest. Um, right. Yeah. So the foreign secretary of the UK, Dominic Robb, uh, he made a formal request saying the diplomatic immunity should not apply in this case. Like this was a grievous miscarriage of justice. Uh, we would like for Miss Akulis to be extradited back to the UK to face justice. To which the yes. US State Department said, no, make us coward. <laughs> this is maybe the worst part. And this is, uh, as you asked, where we're at. <laughs> so this is hey. where we're at. So because there was a breakdown in um, negotiations between the U.S. and the U.K.'s foreign departments, which is already kind of unprecedented, um, yeah. Dunn, Harry Dunn's parents, at the urging of their lawyers, decided 
to accept an offer from Donald Trump and fly to the United States to meet with him personally. Uh, Ew. Yes. So offer it's like a punishment yes but they they maybe i'm assuming that they thought as maybe normal human beings would that they could show this person that they were just two human beings grieving the loss of their son and that he might be as a father moved on a personal level to do the right thing to do the right thing that's also the bare minimum thing that will have almost no like far-reaching like you know government consequences and just allow this woman to be extra it's not even like allow her to be executed or allow her to do whatever all they're asking is to allow her to be extradited to the uk so the uk can formally charge her she hasn't even been charged with anything yet because she has diplomatic immunity god so on october 15th 2019 they go to the white house um the duns right and they think they're going to go meet with Donald Trump. And instead they meet with a senior official uh, who surprises them by saying that Ansicoulis is in the next room and wants to meet them. What? Yeah. And it turns out Donald Trump just thought, well, hey, I'm the best deal maker in the world. So I'm just going to get these two cats in a room together and we're going to bang this out. Uh so they uh, understandably also i'm assuming off of like everything i know about british people were just horrified and we're like it is too soon i cannot see this woman i cannot meet this woman yeah it's completely inappropriate also and then they finally said through their lawyers that if they were to meet ansicolis it should be on british soil when she's taking responsibility for her actions right. uh, so they declined to meet with her uh, good then donald trump says these are his uh these are he meets with the duns all we have are the duns uh recollection of this meeting and donald trump's account of this meeting and you can uh make what you will of this okay so donald trump's uh recollection of the meeting is uh the family was beautiful in a certain way and that driving on the wrong side of the road happens to a lot of people because they go to the road they go to europe and the roads are opposite so that's those are his official statements on the matter on the on this family with their dead kid yeah uh then the dunn the spokesman who works with the attorneys and with the the dunn family uh he says oh no it didn't end there it didn't end with like ah geez what are you gonna do the roads are opposite it ended with donald trump telling this family that uh the secretary of the treasury steve mnuchin uh was in the other room standing by ready to write a check and then said basically like how much do you want for your son's life like how do you much do you want like so we can settle this so this like is we, we got Anne here we got you guys here steve's ready to write a check uh how much do you want um and they said go fuck yourself we don't yes! want your money we want we want Ansicoulis to come back to the, to the united kingdom and face justice on january 23rd secretary of state mike pompeo formally rejected the request again highly unusual home office of it, called it a denial of justice uh because exactly what it is yeah exactly what it is this is really weird now it has gone to the point where um the U.S. and the U.K. were trying to basically 
negotiate for uh, Julian Assange? Because I guess Julian Assange, like uh, the US has been asking the UK to extradite Julian Assange to the US to face major, mega, major like treason charges, right? Uh, and the UK was like, well, give us Ansicoulis. And the US was like, no! Why? I don't, that's what I'm saying. I think it's become like a dick measuring thing. Like there's, I, there is no reason, like even, even if you didn't think this woman, like I think this woman sucks and Erin, I think that she, I think that she should do the right thing and she should waive her diplomatic immunity and go back to the UK face and face it. justice. I mean, and also like the other thing is like, probably if this had just, I, I'm not even saying this is right. I'm just saying like purely objectively, if she had not had diplomatic immunity and she were like a well-to-do woman and this was clearly an accident and she had no right. prior things, she's not going to go to prison for the rest of her life. Like she does need to make amends. She needs to face justice, but this wasn't going to be the end of her life. It has now turned into this insane thing. Uh, right. So the UK in response to the US refusing this deal which would have been a really really good deal for them uh they right you get julian assange yeah you get julian assange they said uh that the u.s had launched an attack on the special relationship so that's great uh and then the wait the u.s or the uk the uk said in declining this okay. deal the u.s right. had launched an attack on the special relationship um oh boy yeah and then the most recent thing this is actually the thing that I first read about this case that led me to read everything else and then like deep dive into diplomatic immunity uh, is that on May 11th of this, of the, our godforsaken year of 2020, uh, <laughs> Interpol released one of their rare red notices for Sakulis's arrests. So it's gotten to the point where that's right mommy and daddy interpol had to get involved and said remind me like let's just say it as a joke that i can't remember what interpol is uh interpol is international police and it's basically like it's like if team america what? world police were real and it's it's um that's so cool yeah oh interpol rules interpol is like actually i don't know if interpol rules they could be bad uh but uh what i do know about interpol is like they do like when something is a global operation they're the ones that deal with it so like global drug trafficking right like crimes against humanity oh. are prosecuted by interpol um major like multi-country multi-continent white collar crime that's interpol so okay they're headquartered in france Ah, <laughs> uh, we so like war crimes and shit yeah interpol Interpol. Yeah. So normally Interpol does not worry itself with a, like a manslaughter. Uh, but this has gotten to the point where like the U S and the UK are in such a deadlock and will, will not compromise for anything. Um, that Interpol has now released a red notice. A red notice is their highest type of notice in the world. They have, that let's see. So cool. Yeah. They have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight levels of notice uh and red is at the top uh and basically it means that if ansicolis leaves uh her house essentially uh she is subject to an international tribunal with extradition i mean so that's the thing is that it's not so much that i 
I enjoy speculating because honestly, the, what happened to this woman or what this woman did is like my nightmare, right? Like I am right so now, I'm, right now I'm currently teaching my 29 year old boyfriend how to drive, which is funny in its own right. But we talk, well, we talk about this a lot. I'm like, yeah, like these are some of the things that you want to do and they seem a little like counterintuitive, but they are all around the idea of just no matter what, you don't want to hit anybody, right? Like you just right. don't want to hit anybody. And honestly, yeah. everything else is expendable. Like the rules are expendable. Your car is expendable. Property is the expendable. You don't want to hit anybody. And because there was this one time I'd come back to England and um, I, I, you know, put me back on the insurance and I was driving my parents' car because they live super in the countryside and you cannot get around any other way. Mm -hmm. And I was taking a ramp to get onto the motorway and there was like a full like big ladder that was like literally across the entire lane and one of those like proper industrial construction ladders uh-huh and so i was like you know in the split moment i was like i have a choice i can either swerve to avoid this thing which would take me into the other lane which i like could result in an accident or i could just go over it and of course the only option is to go over it because like i'm not going to do anything that would potentially involve someone else's life and if this fucks my car up and i get hit from behind the stats of everyone surviving that are far better right so i just went over it and i was in like a little fit punto <laughs> wasn't great definitely needed some uh, work on the car but like i remember having that conversation with my dad of like there was nothing i could do the only thing i could do was literally try, try and speed up and go over it mm-hmm. yeah and i'm sure and he was like that was the right thing to do yeah, because like, I, I mean, I don't know anyone who's, I don't know if anyone listening has been in a car accident. And so a little kind of a trigger warning, but like that, that moment and that sound is something that you never forget. Like right. when a car hits another car, it's just like, whew, it's terrifying. And so, yeah, I can't imagine like me being here when I first like, started to learn to drive on the other side of the road. That is the absolute nightmare scenario. Yeah. That you like, and I was a couple of times definitely that like, even like after living here for four years or something, I pulled out of, um, I pulled out of work course on North Loop and I realized that I was on the wrong side. And it's like this moment of like, fuck and swerve. Yeah. Um, it's the worst feeling. And I can't imagine how she must feel having lot, like caused someone to lose their life. But like, but but well, because the consequences right. the responsibility so it's like there's a part of me that wants to feel that empathy for her but then i i also feel that at this point now we're like what like nine months on that right her refusing to come forward in any capacity um her hiding behind donald trump and allowing him to ambush that family uh so cruel means i feel like she has forfeited her right it really it feels like she's hiding and she's and she's hoping that the powers that be will take care of this for her and that might not be the case but the fact of the matter is is the only person that can refute that being the case is ansicoulis and she won't so right i mean you know probably she her family has lawyers that have advised her not to say anything which is possible but there has to come a point in which you draw a line in the sand and you say, this is the kind of person that I want to be. And this is the kind of person that I don't ever want to be. And I'd like to think that if I were put in that absolutely unimaginable position, that I couldn't wake up and look at myself in the mirror and think, God, I hope Donald Trump takes care of this for me. Oh, yeah. So that's diplomatic immunity. (laughs) 
dude wild yeah mind be blown also we might be losing um, the special relationship <laughs> oh not good news yeah not good news not great um i'm gonna i'm gonna come in i was gonna i'm just gonna go with what my brain said i'm gonna come in dancing with nine <gasps> points oh, yeah. nine points to start off with um I had no idea that that was even a thing and horrifying though it is, it is very interesting also. Yeah. Um, and throughout that, I was kind of imagining myself as like a spy that had diplomatic immunity and that was kind of exciting. So I'm going to give you an extra two points for that. I thought you'd I like that. Am, yeah, I did a lot. Um, I am going to take off four points just for Donald Trump. That's, um, everyone should. And everyone should, no matter kind of what you're scoring, just always Ugh, take that, always. take that, uh, take that off um and oh just my heart goes out to those people yeah it's horrible I, I wish there could be more that could be done but like the red notice means that like Anzacoolis can now not legally leave the United States like the minute that she try that she tries to leave not just to go to the UK but to go anywhere outside of the United States she'll be arrested immediately uh Good. and she's like on like the top of their list so like is that really what she wants to live with for the rest of her life like, even right. if she decides to never leave the U.S., which I know, like, you know, lots of people do, like, like, what would that feel like? Why would you want to live that way? Just so you that you don't could... have the courage to face up to what happened? I guess. Ugh. Sad. Anyway. Very sad lady. Yeah. So that's diplomatic immunity. I encourage you to read more about it and to read more about this case because it's a really interesting example of... Um, a breakdown in diplomatic relations and also why it's so important to kind of have these soft relations, right? Like we, we get mm -hmm. super caught up in, um, Oh, Hey, is North Korea going to bomb us? Like, do we have anything in writing that says they won't, but for every like really big kind of major confrontation that we have like that, there's like a million other sort of like soft diplomatic interactions, uh, that, you just need these people to be on your side and you need them to trust that you will do what's right when the time comes. And right now, right. absolutely nobody has that trust in the United States. So that's great. Nope. <laughs> so it's really good. It's great. It's really good. It's a good place to be. Yeah. We've covered, uh, we've covered several terrible people yeah. on this on this episode Ooh. and uh the sweet normal good hard working people being taken advantage of in two very different ways um so i hope that this sort of provided you with a bit of sort of ranting catharsis it certainly did me how about you chelsea oh me too well i knew that no matter what i said uh it wouldn't scare you well that's exactly <laughs> you know that about me and i know that yeah. about you um chelsea where can people find you People can find me, ooh, this is backed by popular demand. Uh, people can find me at Chelsea Harfouche wherever internets are sold. Beep, beep, beep. There it is. Wow, wow, and wow, you can wow. find me, you can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram and Ellie Mainey, that's M-A, whoa, I forgot, M-A-I-N-E-Y on Twitter. Uh, and you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Twitter and Instagram. We have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash WhatPod. And we have a website where our merch is displayed beautifully at thosetwogirls.club. That's true. So That's check out all that stuff. W-U-T-P-O-D. You what, mate? <laughs> you what, mate? <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Um, until next time, maybe go learn. I'm going to look up all that stuff that you just talked about. Go learn something, guys. Me too.